All right, so today we are going to continue in our series of God is so we are. If you heard it, Xavier has kind of given us the four things that we've looked at. Um, and the reality is, is as we have gone through this series, what we've learned and understood is that our theology and our understanding of who God is is more than just information for us to know, but it's actually transformation for our lives as we go into this world and do what we do. And what I mean by that is, we as Christians, we say that we believe in God, that he is, this God of the Bible is the God that we worship. He's the one true, only God who is the only one deserving and worthy of our worship. But lots of times, our life doesn't match up with that truth. And as we've looked at it, we've seen that, first of all, that God is great, and since he's great, we don't have to be in control. But most of the time, we worry about stuff. We're anxious about something. Because we feel like we need to have our hands in the middle of it in order for it to go right. But God is the almighty sovereign who always is and always will be created all things. And we're worried about controlling this one little deal in our life. And so we recognize that our life doesn't tend to match up with the truth that God is great. Or that God is glorious. So we don't have to fear others. But how often do you and I spend our time trying to get the approval of our friends and our family? Even, I mean, just to think about that. Your friends, the people who have spent and started living life with you, decided and chosen to be in a relationship with you, and you're spending all your time trying to make them like you. They already do, obviously. They're hanging out with you. I'm here to tell you, if, if I'm not hanging out with you, um, it's either because I don't have time or I don't like you. No, I'm just kidding. No, um, but the reality is, is that your friends, that's why they are your friends. Why are you seeking their approval? God is glorious. God is the one we're to fear. God is the one we're to be worried about. Because he is the one who looks down upon our sin. And we should be afraid of that. But he's also the almighty ruler who sits in heaven and graciously gives us good gifts. God is good. That we're his children. That it says in scripture that if God is a good dad, if, you, if you're a good dad and you give your kids good gifts, how much more will the Father, the Father of all beings, give us good gifts? And yet we seek good things in things like money and sex and relationships and our work, and we look to those things and we all of a sudden make these good things that God has created for us and deemed good, that he is the one who is the author of good things. And we make them God things. And we exchange him for the created. Well, today we're going to go into the last one. We're going to be looking at God is gracious. Now, um, if we're to talk about grace, it's, it's been defined in a lot of different ways. Um, Justin Holcomb, in his new book, The Grace of God, says that grace is the love of God shown to the unlovely, the peace of God given to the restless, the unmerited favor of God. B.B. Warfield, who's another theologian, says grace is free, sovereign favor to the ill-deserving. John Stott, grace is love that cares and stoops and rescues. Jerry Bridges says that grace is God reaching downward to people who are in rebellion against him. Regardless of the definition, regardless of how they word it, I think we can all come to the agreement, God's grace is an act in favor of people who are undeserving of his favor, no matter what. 
In fact, B.B. Warfield, I love how he puts ill-deserving. Not only have we not measured up or done something to earn it, but we've acted in opposition to God. We don't want anything to do with him. We've rebelled against him in our sin, and yet God shows us favor. And that is God, and that is his grace, and that's what we're going to talk about today. And while this seems to be honestly, in Scripture, probably one of the most, if not the most important concept to understand about who God is, that He is a gracious God. Because the reality is, is we couldn't understand that He is great, that He is glorious, that He is good if it weren't for His grace interacting in our lives. We seem to kind of get it confused or or mixed up. We don't really seem to grasp the idea of God's grace. And it's not because this concept is, is very complex, that it's so Uh, intricate that you and I can't really get the fathoms of it, or that it's just so big, like God's infinite. We're finite, so that's near impossible. It is impossible, not near. It is impossible for us to really understand that. That's not how this is. I think what it is is our our grace is in such opposition to our sin, and and who sin has created, our sin has created us to be at some level, broken our image to be, that it seems backwards almost, grace does. It seems almost offensive. Um, Jacques Ellul, he's a French philosopher and theologian, he said it this way, grace is the hardest thing for us to be reconciled to, but it, because it implies the renouncing of our pretenses, our power, our pomp, and circumstance. It is opposite of everything our religious sentiments are looking for. Grace reveals our natural pride of self-sufficiency as well as the pride of spiritual progression. Nothing is more devastating to our spiritual pride than grace. It's hard for us to be reconciled to this. It's hard for our brains to grasp this idea because it gets rid of us in the midst of it. And we really want to be a part of it. Let me, maybe a better way to explain it. I think in reality, there's two ways we tend to react to God's grace in our life. First being that we act like it doesn't even exist. So, um, maybe to put this in comparison with things like uh, the American dream. So, the American dream says, no matter your circumstance, no matter where you started, even if it's in the depths of poverty, you have it in yourself in this country because of the opportunities to make whatever you want of your life, because you have it in yourself to do it. And so, you have these people that live this life and work all as many hours as they can and do all that they can to give either their family or themselves the best life they could possibly have. Because that's what the American dream is, to have the house, to have the car, to have the family, whatever that looks like. But you get to the end of that whole thing, and oftentimes, God is not anywhere to be seen in the midst of it. Maybe he's a part of your life in the sense that you go to church and he's the religion you give yourself to. But we're going to look at this a little bit later. The reality is, is that all those things that you've been given, the abilities, the time, the breath that you have is all from the grace of God, all by the grace of God. But we want to ignore that because then that pulls the carpet out from underneath us. We want to be the ones who did all that. We want to be the ones that people can point at and say, do you see what he did with his life? Wow. But God's grace doesn't work that way. Or secondly, we want to be very selfish with God's grace. So, We live in a culture in a day where justice, we want justice to be served and served well. 
And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think we were created in God's image, and God is a just God who wants to see punishment for our sin. And so we see things like murder and rape and pedophilia and anything disgusting and, and horrid. We, we want punishment on those people. We want to see justice served. But it goes down even to a smaller level where if you're wronged or if you uh, get your feelings hurt or your pride hurt, or somebody lies to you or somebody does sin against you, we want to see them punished as well, right? Because it just travels over. We want to see that happen. <clears throat> what happens, though, whenever you're the one who does the wrong? What happens when you're the one who did the offense, who sinned against somebody, who wronged against somebody, who lied against somebody? All of a sudden, the grace that you didn't want the other person to ever have, you want to see them justly punished. You, the, the, you want the grace. You don't want that punishment. All of a sudden, mercy and grace is all you can see. Or maybe it's you've worked really hard to see something happen in your life. So you've given all your time to see a room finished in your house. Maybe it's something you're doing outside, a project at work, a relationship you're trying to build. You put all this time and energy and effort into getting this thing accomplished. And so you feel like you deserve to see the outcome of that. That it should come out exactly like you want it to come out. Something good should come of that because you put all the time and effort into it. But what happens when somebody else maybe doesn't put in quite as much effort, but gets something just as good. All of a sudden, that's not cool. We don't want them to have that, right? We only want good things for us. There's, a, there's an envy and a jealousy that almost seems to rise up when somebody else doesn't work as hard as we do or do as much as we do, and yet good things happen to them. Reality is, is that we want to be the center of, of reality. We want to have our hands and a part in everything that goes on in our lives. So we, we either act like God's grace doesn't exist or we're very, very selfish about it. The good news is God's grace is bigger than you and I's sin. And in fact, in our sin, God's grace shines that much more brightly. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul is spending some time talking to the Corinthians and he's telling them about this uh, thorn in the flesh is what he calls it, that he has where he's just suffering and he can't get it to go away and he's pleaded for God to get rid of it, to take it from him. And God looks at him and says this, my grace, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Today we're going to start our understanding of God's grace in the midst of our sin and brokenness and fallenness and suffering because in that God's grace is made perfect. In our weakness and in our failings and in our sin, God's grace is made that much more beautiful, that much more perfect. And it's, I think for us to really, truly understand what God's grace looks like, we have to start in the midst of our own sin. So, if you've got a Bible, you want to turn to Genesis 1.1. That's where we're going to start. Very first book, very first verse in the entire Bible. Um, if you don't have your Bibles, the verses should be up on the screen. I put a PowerPoint together. Who knows if it's going to work? I'm hoping it does. Technology and me don't get along all the time. So, um, But Genesis 1-1, this is what it starts out saying. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, if we were to look back over the last few weeks, talk about God's great, God's glorious, God's good, the reality is, is if we really believe all those things, what is the purpose of creation? Because if God is really great, he has no need for us to be here because he's in control of all things. He doesn't need us to control anything. 
And if he's really glorious, he, what need is there for anybody else to, to be feared? And if he's really good, what other thing is needed except for him? He's the most satisfying thing there is in this world for us. So you begin asking questions like that if you really are believing that God is those three things. And I don't think there's really a good way for me to answer that in this sermon. So sorry, I'm going to leave you hanging for a second. But um, I think we can look at that, that last verse, that God created the heavens and the earth, and we can immediately see that God is gracious in his creation. That there was no need to make any of the earth. There was no need to make any of us. We weren't deserving of it. We hadn't earned it. But he decided to create us and bring us into his ex existence so that we could experience the love of God. So we could get to experience his love that overflows between him, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We get to know that love. And so he created us that we might experience that kind of love. So God's grace was present in the very first seconds of creation. That was God's grace. And the minute that he decided to create, there was grace involved. Because you and I didn't deserve that. We didn't deserve what we get to experience here on this earth. The reality is, is God's grace is revealed in more than just a moment, more than just our regeneration, which we tend to point to when we see God's grace. Not downplaying that. Biggest moment of grace probably in our lives ever. But it's revealed in more than just a moment, but in every moment throughout life. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Jesus, by his power, upholds the universe by the word of his power. That Jesus doesn't have to do any actions, but literally because he has spoken in the power of his words, the whole universe stays in existence. So, the earth tilts at the perfect angle so that you and I don't freeze to death or burn up. Good thing. Great thing. The atmosphere is perfectly made with the correct gases and it's it's exactly correct with the gravity, everything like that, so that you and I can breathe. Another good thing. Hope you guys recognize that. I like breathing. I don't know if you do. Uh, technology, the things you experience like your iPad, um, getting to hear awesome music. God created those. He gave you the ability to know. He gave you a brain. He gave human beings brains so that we could think and begin to understand his creation. And we could begin using it for his glory and his good. And so we get things like technology. We can drive cars. We get to be in relationship with one another because he created other human beings. The reality is, is that every single thing you do, every single thing you experience, every single part of your life is a display and a showing of God's grace in this world. Isn't that awesome? I mean, isn't that just mind-boggling? to think that God's grace is what interacted with, with the world so that you and I could know him and experience all the great things that he has created us to experience. So, God has, has created all of these things, and it says in Genesis 1-1 that he made them, but we all know in a couple chapters, things kind of go awry. Things don't quite go the way they should have gone. And we get to Adam and Eve's creation, and and God speaks to them, and he says this in Genesis 2, 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. 
God in this moment tells, he's placed Adam in the garden. He's given him a woman, a wife, somebody that he can be with and live in relationship with. And God gives him a command to be fruitful and multiply, which every man says, amen, amen. If you're married, amen, right? Amen. That's right. It's about as close to the one as they were naked and unashamed. Um, So it's a good thing. God gave us wives and husbands to enjoy the relationship of one another so that we could understand what it really looks like to live in relationship. That's a great thing. And then he tells them to go and subdue the earth as well. And so he tells them to take care of the garden, to, to tend for it, to watch over it, to enjoy the things of the garden. And he tells them he can eat anything in the whole garden from all of the trees except for one. And so he gives them one command. Don't eat of this tree because on that day, if you eat of this, you will die. And we all know in a couple verses, lo and behold, Adam and Eve eat of the tree. Now let me ask you a question. What happens to him in that moment, in that day? Do they die? But God just said they were going to, right? So is God lying to them? Is there something wrong with this picture? The reality is, is that in that moment, God begins to show grace. And, it's, and we'll talk about it a little further on, about his justice on, on our sin. But in this moment, we see God allowing them to live. And not only that, but as they sin, God, Adam and Eve recognize that they are, there's shame and there's guilt over what they have done. They feel naked and, and dirty. And God not only doesn't kill them, but he clothes them. And he allows them to cover up and begin reconciling that the thing that became broken in that moment. That God's grace was already at work in that very second that they sinned. Because he didn't kill them. And you continue to see it as he closes them and begins to reconcile them to himself. The greatness of God's grace, in reality, overwhelms all of our sin. And maybe you think, you know, that's really not me. I'm a pretty good dude. I do good things. Go to church. Read my Bible. I don't kill anybody. High five to everybody who doesn't kill people. You know, that's not me. So I'm a pretty good dude. The reality is, is that we're all sinners. Paul in Romans 3 says this, Romans 3.10 is where we're going to start. It says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. We'll start there, none. That includes you. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood in their paths, are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Paul goes on to say later in in chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of our sin, because we're sinners, we deserve death. And so the reality is, is that you and I, Scripture says that you and I, all people, are sinners. And because of our sin, God's wrath is supposed to be upon us. That you and I have decided that God's throne and his authority is not worth 
following or being under, that we want to usurp it and make ourselves the king. We want to make ourselves the ruler over all things. We want to deem what is good and what is right, what's holy, what makes us feel good, right? We want to do those things. And we've decided that even though God created us to enjoy him, the greatest good, he doesn't really know what's going on. You know, he just, he just really doesn't have it all together. We do, though, right? I can't find my keys in the morning, but we've got it all together. But as you look at Scripture time and time again, man can't get this even kind of right. We can't even seem to sort of follow the rules. Ephesians 2 says it this way, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, you and I, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in the work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, you and I, we were dead, literally spiritually dead. There is nothing we could do to bring any good thing to God because a dead person doesn't do much. They just keep rotting and dying. And we didn't even care that we were dead. We just kept following this path of destruction and sinfulness. And the Bible says clearly, because of that, we all deserve death, right? We all deserve hell and eternal separation from the greatest good. That's the only just thing that could come from that. If God is really good, the only just thing that could come from our sin is hell. But God. And in that moment, in these verses, we'll continue on. Those two words probably make the greatest impact in your life ever. Two words, but God. But is a, just a beautiful word here. Most of the time, buts are not beautiful. This but, beautiful. You and I are sinners deserving death and hell and damnation. But God, and this is what it says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not this, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What do we see in that verse? Those verses. The power of God's grace brings life to the dead. You and I, man, we deserved what we had coming to us. But God who's rich in mercy, who's gracious, who's abounding in faithfulness and love, saw it not fit that we should just die in our sins, but made us alive together with Christ, if by grace you believe in faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, just the ridiculousness of that. Doesn't that just kind of stand in opposition to everything you feel inside of you? If you are a, just a bad, evil person, you want justice served. The bad guy in the film, there is never, ever 
a time when you don't want to see justice served against that dude. Or in the story, whatever you're, you're watching, we don't want to see redemption for the bad guy. We want to see justice served. That makes us feel real good. Redemption, eh, you know, I'm not really sure how I feel about that. But God, who is rich in mercy. Exodus 34 is another real good example of this. God is speaking to the Israelites at this moment, and they had just come out of bondage out of Egypt. God had saved them. God had done miraculous works, parting the Red Sea, killing all of the Egyptians that were following them, causing all these plagues so that Pharaoh would let them go. They get to the other side. Moses goes up the mountain um, when, when they get there. And all of a sudden, the people are like, ah, you know, Moses hasn't come down in a few days. I think he might be dead. So, Aaron, how about you create us a new God? And that quickly forgot all about him. And they create this, this golden calf that they begin bowing down to and worshiping and wanting to see uh, glorified. And Moses comes down off the mountain, and God's wrath is shown to the people, and they destroy it, and they have to drink their own idol. That they ground it up and put it in their drinks for everybody to have. And God in that moment looks down on his people and he says, this is what he says about himself. I am a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And in line with the definition of grace, came at no expense or no action of their own. They were acting in opposition to him. They were worshiping something else rather than him. But he decided in that moment to, to show them grace. We did absolutely nothing, you and I, the Israelites, any person throughout history to earn the grace of God. If we did, it nullifies it. It's no longer grace. It becomes something that we've earned or deserved. Grace is then no longer in existence if that's all it is. And I think that's what we really try to do often is we try to live up and make these good works to pile them up so that God can look at us and say, you know, you're a good person. Or other people can look at us and say, we, we like you. You do a lot of good things. We think a lot of you. Or even yourself. You try to fool yourself at some level sometimes, I think, into thinking that you're, you're really better than you actually are. But the scripture tells us very clearly there's nothing that you and I could do ever to earn the grace of God. Um, we cut off on a part of Romans 3 earlier, and we're going to pick it back up. It says this, But now the righteousness of God has been made manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all believers, for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The beauty of grace is that we... It can't be earned, but it's freely given. There's no amount of good things you can do. God gave us the law, he says, earlier in Romans 3, specifically to show us that we couldn't do it. Seems a little cruel almost, but it's not. It's just the reality and truth of who we are. But God gave us the law so that all could be held accountable to him because he gave us the standard for living righteous lives. And no matter how hard we try to keep it, we fail at some point. And James says if we are failing one point, we're guilty of them all. But the beauty of grace is 
that it can't be earned. The beauty and the wonder, what makes grace so great, so special, so awesome in the Christian life is that it can't be earned, that you can't do anything to get it. You can't work any amount of time or effort to make Jesus like you or God love you. God's grace does that. God's grace moves and works in us so that we can understand that. And the greatest reason we know this is because the grace of God came in full in the God-man, Jesus Christ. John 1.14 says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You want to know how you know God's grace is real and evident that He is a gracious God? Because of Jesus Christ. Because the reality is, is as we've talked and made our way through this, you recognize you can't do it. You're a sinner. You deserve hell and damnation. We can't, there's nothing we can do to earn God's love. And so you know what he did? Not only was he just, because the reality is, is God doesn't look at our sin and then just sweep it under the rug in his grace or just make it disappear. I mean, Think of a courtroom. I know this example is used a lot, but really, honestly, think of this. If, if a murderer, serial killer, comes into the room, looks at the judge and says, you know, I'm guilty of this because we recognize we are. I'm standing in his place. We're guilty. And the judge says, you know what? Today, I've decided to show you grace. You're free to go. Would anybody think he's an actual just judge? to let the serial killer go free, to let him roam about to kill more people. There's no justice in that. God claims and calls himself to be a just God in Scripture, so if he is to be honest, justice has to be served. And so instead of you and I getting the punishment and the penalty and the death for the pain and the destruction and the sin we've brought into this world, he put it all on his son. He chose to send his son and ask his son to come to live a perfect life, the only one who didn't sin, the only one who was able to look at God and say, I've done all things to their full, the only one who was able to, to actually walk up to God and say, my nature is not ruined, all the things I've ever done have been for your glory and your good. And instead of getting the right gift that he deserved and being seated at his father's hand in glory, he got hell, the hell and damnation we deserved. He didn't go to hell, but he, he got what we deserved. He got death. That, that the wrath of God was poured out on him on the cross because of our sin. And not only that, and this is where grace just gets unreal. Not only did the punishment you deserve go on the cross on Jesus Christ, who didn't deserve it, but God's righteousness, the righteousness of his son, now stands in your place. And you don't have to worry anymore about living the perfect life or proving yourself to anybody. Because Jesus did all that. The gospel says that Jesus took every bit of that on the cross. God is a God of abundant, the scripture says that there's abundant grace, immeasurable grace, unbelievable grace, who in his son, in his grace, decided the greatest offense against him would not be held against those who committed it. 
but instead would be held against his perfect son. That's how we know God is gracious. That's how you and I can know that we worship and serve a gracious God because Jesus Christ was here. He was the literal, physical embodiment of grace walking on this earth. Without Jesus, none of us would come to know God. None of us would be able to experience God. None of us would be able to experience this life because without Jesus' death, Romans says that God passed over all former sins until Christ came so that he could place them all on Jesus. Without Christ's death, Adam and Eve, gone. Death. None of us would be here. But God, but God. So, what does that mean for you and I? If God is really a gracious God, what does that mean for you and I? And, and like we've said, if God is gracious, that means we don't have to prove ourselves. And I think there's three people in particular we try to prove ourselves to, and I've kind of already brought it up. We try to prove ourselves to ourselves. We try to prove ourselves to others, and we try to prove ourselves to God. And what I mean by that is in, in that we try to prove ourselves to ourselves. I think we surprise ourselves in how bad we really are. Sounds weird. But whenever you sin or you screw up, I think there's almost this moment where you're like, I did that? I didn't do that. Seriously? And I always was, I was think of a child that, you know, just claims to never know what happened when he cut the sister's hair all off. Well, I didn't do that. There's no way. But we see our sin and we recognize it when it happens and we go, I'm really that bad? And so we do all these good things then all of a sudden because we feel like we got to make up for that in order to prove to ourselves we're not really that bad and to others. And so we do all these good things and honestly this self-penance, we'll call it, self-atonement, is just saying that God's grace isn't big enough to cover your sin. You're saying that you don't believe that God's grace is great enough to cover the sin that you just committed. Killed a son. I think it's great enough. Or we try to prove ourselves to others in that we try to put on a good face, do a lot of good things, make other people like us. Um, lots of times it ends up in judging others because we, we see that they're not as good as us. They didn't really go to church this last two weeks. I can't believe them sinners. Heretics. That's what, I mean, we, we do. We, we start trying to prove ourselves to other people and measuring ourselves against others. And so there becomes a scale of good based on human goodness. When we learned last week, all things that are deemed good come from God. And he deemed us all not good. So that can't be the case, right? In those moments, we, we're not believing that God's grace is great enough to cover all of our sins. You, it's good enough maybe to cover some of mine, but not yours. Or maybe it's good enough to cover some of theirs, but not mine. God's grace is great enough to cover all sin. It overwhelms all sin. And the last one we look at, and to be honest, I think this is the one that really, really pervades our culture and where we live, is that we try to prove ourselves to God. So we, we try to go to church, and we try to read our Bible, and we pray, and we do all these things, and it's like we stack them up. It's like we've kept all these IOUs at some point, and when we come to God in prayer later that week, we're like, you see all these things I did? Surely you think I'm a good person now. I mean, I did it like 10 more times than my buddy over here. So, read my Bible. I memorized a verse even. So, and that takes a lot of work. So, you should really think good of me right now. And we try to prove that <clears throat> we have something to offer him. 
that we have something good to give him. His son died. I mean, I, I just keep coming back to it, but the reality is, is that Jesus died because you and I have nothing to offer him. In our sin, we got nothing. <clears throat> to be honest, this is, to share from my own life, this is kind of where I've been at growing up. I grew up here. I went to church here. Um, I was part of a good church-going family. I went every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, showed up for choir practice when I got old enough, went to kids' choir when I was young enough, Awanas, went to Sunday school. I did all those things. I prayed. I uh, read my Bible. We had devotions every now and then at home. Um, my dad and my mom were very involved in the church. They led a couple of Sunday school classes. I mean, the reality is, is that I, I, I did all those things, even as a child. And I enjoyed it. But high school came around, and all of a sudden, things didn't seem so great. And I didn't really understand what was going on, but I was very, up, like, just eh, apathetic, maybe is a good word for it. Partially because I, and looking back on it now, I don't think I recognized it then, but there was this burden that just weighed on me every time I showed up to church. Every time Sunday came around, every time Wednesday came around, there was a burden that I carried. And uh, I stopped going to church for a little while, kind of just started doing whatever I wanted to do at some level. Not anything terrible, just if I was just hanging out with my friends, though, and not at church, I didn't have to feel bad about not being at church because it felt good to be with my friends. And there was no pain and there was no burden of trying to be the person that I knew I really wasn't at church. And so I started doing that over and over again. And, um, you know, it was what it was. And I show up to church camp one year for youth, and um, there was a guy speaking. His name was Aaron Cavan. And I'll just be honest with you, this, this moment changed my life. Because he looked at us all, and he's talking to a bunch of high school kids. And he said probably one of the most profound things in the world, but it shook me. He said, you know, there's nothing in Jesus Christ that you can do to make God love you any more or any less. What? You mean all those good things that I did? All those prayers that I prayed, all those songs I sung, all the Bible verses I memorized, all the Sunday school classes I attended, all the youth group events I went to? That didn't make Jesus like me anymore? And that was devastating. That rocked me to the core to think there's nothing I did that made him like me. But in that same moment, God's grace just filled my heart because at the same time, there's nothing that I could do to make him love me any less. God showed his full love in the grace of Jesus Christ dying on that cross. There's nothing more he could do to show me he loved me than killing his son because of me. There's nothing I could do to bring him to like me anymore. He loved me fully. Man, that just... That rocked everything. And I think the reality is, is that as Christians, we come to this point where we recognize that God has saved us. And it rocks us. And grace just changes us. And we don't know what to do with it. And so we come to this point where we try to then give things back to God because of the immense gift he gave us. I mean, think about it. On Christmas Day or something, maybe your birthday, you got a gift that you knew you didn't deserve, way bigger than you ever got anybody else. 
what do you do the whole rest of the year? You try to show that person, at, well, for me, it's like the next like four days because then it's just like, but you spend those next few days trying to make that person know that you really appreciated it at some level, maybe through trying to give them back something, showing them that you actually kind of deserved it maybe, that you deserved the gift that they gave you, so you try to work to show that you earned that, that it makes sense that you got it because you did all these good things. And so we come, and, and I, I don't think, the difficulty in this is I don't think gratitude is a bad motive, but it can lead to bad actions and a bad motive. Thankfulness is a theme throughout all of Scripture. You should always be thankful in all things that you do because God has graced you with that moment. But if we come only with gratitude, we try to pay God back usually for what he's done for us. So you come with these actions, and it's, it's all we know to do. And I don't think there's even, we even realize it at some level sometimes, but we're trying to pay God back. So the question becomes, what do I do then? If God is this gracious, unreal God who in my sin decided that there's nothing that he's done for me, but I'm going to love him. Nothing. He killed my son, and I'm going to love him. I'm going to show him grace. I'm going to save him. How, what do you do? You turn and give him the glory. The rest of your life becomes this moment of seeking God's grace banked on the foundation of past grace. Does that make sense? So if God is good enough to kill his son and gracious enough to kill his son and show himself just the almighty, sovereign, gracious God that he is in that moment, how much more will he show himself later in life? as you seek his grace, as you seek to make much, make much of him, as you live your life totally devoted to him. Not to pay him back, but to see him move, to see him work, to see him do something that is worthwhile in your life, to make your life count. You seek his grace. You seek his grace in everything that you do. It changes how you approach things. Because here's the reality. If you don't have to prove yourself to God, to ourselves or to others, you can literally risk everything to see God glorified. Everything. If there was ever a religion in this world that called us to risk it all for the sake of our God, it's this one. Because in it, you have nothing left to prove. If you fail miserably, it's okay. You're free to struggle. You remember the song we sang? You're free to do that. You want to know why? Because God's a gracious God. You're free to fail and mess up and do things wrong because God's a gracious God. He killed his son. His son died that you might know he's a gracious God. He's going to show himself. You just, you just got to be the one seeking. You got to be the one going. You got to be the one knocking on the doors, talking to people and waiting for God's grace to show itself. It's showing itself in the fact that you're able to just know him in those moments. But how much more when you get to share it with others? Our God is a gracious God. We are undeserving of all that he's giving us. But we get to worship him. How great is that? Psalm 103. Um, I'm going to read it real quick. Just a portion of it. It says this. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. 
He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Man, the burden is gone. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you, and we are, God, we are amazed. We are blown away by your grace. God, the sheer fact that you would send your son, perfect and holy, righteous, needing nothing from us, God, decided to to have him die, that we might know your love, that we might know your salvation, that we might have a relationship with you, God. How great is your grace. How beautiful is your grace, God. It's what motivates us to keep going. It's what gives us the ability to to go out and, and do all that we do, God, to just even breathe. God, I pray that your grace rests deep in our hearts, that we seek it out, that we search it, that we rest in it, because we know in that, God, we find all that we need to make much of you. Because that moment, God, it's not about us, it's about you. I pray, God, that um, if there's anyone here, God, that's just dealing with the burden and the stress and the pain of trying to live up to you, God, that they would just drop it at your feet. Let you take it away, God, and remember that your grace is something that can't be earned or worked for or deserved, God. And rejoice in the fact that you want to show us your grace. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.